Hello, and welcome to episode number three of the Dan the Story Man podcast. I'm Dan the Story Man, and I'm stoked to have you here with me today as we explore a different kind of story. This episode will be a little different. You see, not all stories are fiction, right? In fact, some of the very best stories are true stories. Now, if you're like me, you've probably read some really good accounts about real events that just kept you on the edge of your seat. When I read Philip Freeman's amazing biography of Alexander the Great, I felt like I was right there with that remarkable Macedonian king as he visited the Siwa Oasis in Egypt and sought the blessing of the mysterious Oracle of Amun. And when I read John Krakauer's incredible book, Into Thin Air, I felt like I was right there in that icy and tragic 1996 snowstorm on Mount Everest because those stories were so compelling to me. In our first episode, we talked about how stories tell us something about ourselves. The true historical stories do that just as well as the fictitious ones do. The conquests of Alexander the Great teach us about bravery, ingenuity, and achievement, while also teaching us some very harrowing lessons about cruelty, discrimination, and the thirst for power. Into Thin Air also touches on the wonders of great achievement and of surviving despite terrible odds while also giving us some very vital warnings about preparation and risk-taking. What I'm saying today is, history is a story, one that, like all stories, tells us something about ourselves. We just have to remember that history can be a little bit more complicated. You'll see what I mean. Today, we're going to explore something of a historical mystery. So come with me. We're going to have some fun. I'm going to ask you to use your imagination as we start our journey today. Can you do that for me? I'm going to ask you to imagine that you are a member of a Polynesian culture. The year is about 800 AD, or CE if you prefer. And you live on a beautiful tropical island in the south of the Pacific Ocean. Your life is filled with warm breezes blowing through palm trees, beautiful beaches, and lots of family. You grow crops, raise domestic animals, and go fishing for seafood together. And life is pretty good. But you know, life on an island has its challenges too. As the population grows, there isn't enough room for everyone. There's not enough land for homes and crops and animals. And pretty soon, if you and your family are going to survive, you realize you may need to find a new home. But you know what? That idea is actually pretty exciting to you. You look out into the waves of the ocean, and you start singing like Moana. No, no, I'm kidding. But seriously, you do wonder... What adventures lie beyond the horizon? What new lands might there be just waiting to be explored? Is there a new home out there for you? You come across a fellow islander who feels the same way. 
He knows that your island can't support the growing population, and he's ready to go in search of something new. His name is Hotumatua, and he's getting together a party of maybe 20 or so explorers to go out in search of new lands. And you're excited, so you volunteer to go. Taking a couple of large boats that are built very much like large, sturdy canoes, you set out on a long and dangerous journey through the ocean, heading east toward the rising sun. You take some provisions with you, and you do a lot of fishing along the way to supplement your food supply. You feel your boat bouncing along the massive ocean waves, and you feel the spray of the salty water in your face. Can you feel that? The ocean is so much a part of who you and your people are. You also brave some pretty intense storms as you sail along, thinking now and then that your ship might actually get swallowed in the wild thrashes of the tempest, but you survive, and together you sail on. At night, you're guided by the light of the stars, which punctuate that deep, dark sky above you. Can you see it? Beneath and all around you, the massive ocean somehow feels even deeper and even darker than the sky. With the collective expertise of your team, and with the expertise that comes from your seafaring culture, you push on with your great adventure. At long last, after traveling hundreds of miles, you see a tiny speck on the horizon. Are you seeing things, or is it really land? As you come closer, you see that it is indeed land, with birds of all kinds circling all around the shores. You've discovered an unexplored island. And after weeks of sailing, your whole team is thrilled to get their feet on land. Following Hotumatua's lead, you explore the island and discover that it really is quite a find. So it's a volcanic island, about 63 square miles in size. Now, the volcanoes themselves are long extinct, but they've produced this rocky terrain that is interspersed with very fertile volcanic soil. Thick forests of trees, bushes, and grass almost completely cover the island, with beautiful vegetation at every turn. Now, the island, though mostly ringed with steep, rocky coastlines, also features a couple of gorgeous coral sand beaches. There's birds, there's fish, small mammals, all found in abundance. You have discovered a lush island paradise, a new home ripe for settlement. Congratulations! Planting a few yams to get a start on an early harvest and leaving two or three of your teammates behind to care for them and to start grooming the island for settlement, you and the rest of the team follow Hotumatua back to your home island across those hundreds of miles of ocean. That's right, you get to go on that long journey again. Lucky you. When you get there, You report the happy news of your discovery to your family. And within a few weeks, you and your family are among nearly a 100 settlers in larger boats that are now making your way across that huge ocean distance yet again, 
arriving to colonize in your beautiful new home. In the course of a few years after you get there, things are really going well. Your new little colony is successful, and it grows, and it thrives. Not long after that, it actually becomes its own small civilization, because that distance between you and your original home island is just so far that almost nobody travels between the two places anymore. Your people become a distinct, happy, and prosperous people in your little island paradise. The story you've just been a part of, that we've just walked through, is a real story. It's how the civilization of the Rapa Nui got started. The Rapa Nui felt so much a part of the island they found that the island itself ended up with the same name, Rapa Nui. Today, that island has other names. Since it belongs politically to Chile, it's known in Spanish as Isla de Pascua. Most of us in the English-speaking world know it as Easter Island. For the majority of people, Easter Island is famous because of some very interesting and distinct landmarks. Over 900 carved stone heads, some of them up to 33 feet tall and weighing 82 tons. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, try googling the words Easter Island heads, and you'll probably recognize the pictures that you see. Uh, if you're used to tiki decorations, they look kind of like those tiki faces that you could buy at Hobby Lobby, right? Or if you need even a little bit more help, try thinking of the movie Night at the Museum, if you ever saw that. It had Ben Stiller in it as a security guard at an enchanted museum. Do you remember the big stone statue thing that always said to him, Hey, dum-dum, give me gum-gum. That's one of the Easter Island Stonehead statues that we're talking about. So what are those statues about, anyway? Where do they fit into this story? Well, the Stonehead statues, known as Moai in the Rapa Nui language, are thought to possibly represent gods or protector spirits of some kind. Interestingly, all of them face inward toward the inside of the island. They don't, they don't look out to the sea. It's thought this might represent that the statues are protecting the island and its people from any invaders coming from the ocean. So it's a protective stance, if you will. The Rapa Nui people regularly held ceremonies and gave offerings around these statues, so it's thought they had a pretty important place in Rapa Nui worship. Okay, let's press pause for a minute. So what have we learned so far? Among many things that we could draw from the story up to this point, the colonization of the Rapa Nui reminds us, hey, always be reaching for the horizon, right? When we feel like we're hitting up against our limits, it might be time to strike out into the unknown and see where the next paradise is. And we also learn that even for an independent and exploration-driven people like the Rapa Nui, the spiritual component represented by those statues, remains vital. Keeping a spiritual connection can give us a lot of strength when we're in territory that at first may seem unfamiliar. So there's a couple of things we might have learned from the story so far. Think about what other things you might have learned from it. Now, I promised you a mystery, didn't I? I did. And we've definitely got one on Easter Island. A question of who done it. 
or maybe what done it. We're trying to track down who the villain of the story is. You see, the Rapa Nui flourished for hundreds of years, but then something apparently happened. The year is now 1722, and Dutch sailor Jacob Rogovin arrives at the island of Rapa Nui. He's the very first European explorer to do so, he and his crew. It's Easter Sunday, and to mark the occasion, Rogovin gives the island the name by which it will be known among European people, Easter Island. Rogovin and his crew are excited to see some land and to disembark and get some fresh land air. There is no inhabited land around for another 1,200 miles. They've been sailing for a long time, and some of the crew aren't feeling so great. The stop on Rapa Nui raises spirits tremendously, and the crew note how amazing this little civilization is. There's still lots of forests and greenery, alongside a fair number of those iconic uh, stonehead statues, and the population of the island numbers in the thousands. There's lots of crops and livestock and seafood to be shared. On the whole, the Rapa Nui seem to be doing rather well. Over the course of the next 150 years, however, the island is visited sporadically by European explorers who find it in progressively worse shape. By 1877, over 150 years after Roggeveen first arrived, the little civilization of thousands of people that had stood for nearly a thousand years has been reduced to just 111 people. And those lush forests? They've completely disappeared. The island has become instead rather barren, stark, and sparsely populated in comparison to that thriving civilization of just 150 years earlier. There are, however, more Stonehead Moai statues than there have ever been, over 900 in total now, and almost all of them mysteriously thrown down with their faces in the dirt. What happened to the Rapa Nui? Where did all the people go? And what happened to all of the trees? That sounds like a question for the Lorax, doesn't it? Who is the villain of our story? I'll give you a hint, it's not the Onceler. For many years, including most of the 20th century, experts had this theory that they stuck to, and those mysterious stone heads were a big part of it. You see, it takes a lot of ingenuity to move a huge stonehead statue from where it was quarried in the volcanic hills to the various platforms around the island where those statues were finally positioned. Some of the statues were moved as far as nine miles from where they were cut in the hills. Scientists thought that trees were cut down and used as rollers to move the statues along the ground to the place where they needed to be positioned. And they noticed also that many of the later statues were progressively larger in size than the earlier ones, so it was almost as if the Rapa Nui were trying to one-up each other in creating more and more and larger and larger statues. So according to this theory, the trees disappeared because they were being cut down 
to be used as rollers to move the statues. The volcanic soil of the island was fertile, but it was also by this time very old soil. And with the nutrients being so depleted, the Rapa Nui could not replace those trees as quickly as they were cutting them down. So finally, the the apparent competition to create larger statues and the fact that these statues were thrown down into the dirt seemed to be suggesting to these experts that the Rapa Nui had split up into factions. They had apparently waged civil war against each other, and with so many deaths, that reduced their population eventually to just 111 people. Now that's a reasonable conclusion, isn't it? Have we found the culprit? Have we discovered the villain of the story? In the 20th century, as experts studied Easter Island closely for the first time, slowly placing those stonehead statues back up into position as they did so, this theory seemed to make sense. But closer inspection, just within the last 30 to 40 years, throws some doubt on that theory. The interesting thing, my friends, about a civil war is that it usually means there's lots of weapons and blood everywhere. But guess what? That's not what we find on the island of the Rapa Nui. When we look at Rapa Nui burials from this time period, there are actually very few skeletons with battle wounds and very, very few weapons. And those weapons tend to be fairly small. And when those weapons are studied, guess what is most often found on the tips of their blades? Human blood? Nope. Sweet potatoes. They were apparently knives for cutting food, not for cutting flesh. It was also odd that when the big stone statues were thrown down, they were not damaged. If the throwing down of the statues was supposed to signify civil war and competition, it was very strange that the statues appear to have been laid down very gently instead of broken or defaced or destroyed by rival factions who could have easily done that if they'd wanted to. Experts now think the statues were probably intentionally laid down gently instead of violently thrown down simply as a means of expressing that the Rapa Nui were losing faith in their protector gods, not as a means of expressing competition or war with each other. All right, smarty pants, you say to me, so if there was no civil war and no competition, as you say, then where did the trees and the people go? Who is the villain? Closer inspection in recent years shows that while the trees indeed may have been used as rollers, there was a lot more going on there. European explorers introduced sheep to the island, and the Rapa Nui were cutting down trees to make room for grazing land. Those same European explorers also accidentally brought rats on their ships, and some of those rats made their way onto the island. Well, guess what? Research uncovered the fact that these rats were very good at gnawing into the seeds of the various tropical trees, making it harder for the trees to grow. And yes, the soil was also becoming very depleted from a thousand years of use. These things all contributed to the disappearance of the forests. Ah, but what about the people? Where did they go? Well, further research showed that one component 
may have been the fact that enterprising souls from a couple of nearby South American nations dropped by periodically to capture Rapa Nui people and enslave them in their mines in mainland South America. That's definitely one negative component for a population. And of course, with the decline in the trees and the decline of fertility in the soil, one might naturally expect that a larger population was going to be harder to sustain anyway, which is true. But the biggest factor of all appears to have been something much more subtle than we first thought. Remember when Jacob Rogovin's people first arrived in 1722 on Easter Sunday? Several of them, it seemed, were not feeling well. Uh-oh. Yep, that's right. It looks like those illnesses were spread to the Rapa Nui, and those people were simply not equipped to handle them. They didn't have immunity to them. Disease appears as though it may have been the prevailing reason that the Rapa Nui people disappeared so quickly. And they may have built more and larger Moai statues in an attempt to appeal to their gods for help, and then lost faith when it didn't appear to be working. At any rate, the collapse of the Rapa Nui appears to be a much more complicated affair than experts initially thought. Lest we leave our story with an unhappy ending, I'd like you to know that today, nearly 8,000 people live on the island of Rapa Nui, or Easter Island. And even though those forests never really grew back, things are much better than they were in 1877, when there were only 111 people and things were really rough. So, who ultimately was the villain of the story? We're used to it being much more clear-cut, like being able to identify the butler as the killer in a murder mystery. One major point of sharing this story with you is precisely its level of nuance. The Rapa Nui didn't disappear just for one single reason, and that is where history is more difficult for us sometimes than a simple fiction story. Both fiction and history can give us amazing lessons, in this case, in addition to the lessons we talked about earlier from our journey to the island, we can add some lessons about being good stewards of our resources and remembering that our actions can have widespread consequences for the people around us, like, for example, sharing germs with a population that has never had them before. But with history, we also have to resist the urge to paint one person or group of people in a single way. The fact is, most of us spend some time doing good things and some time doing bad things. Most of us have played the part of both hero and villain, and a lot depends on our context and point of view. Even though disease may have been the largest contributing factor in the decline of the Rapa Nui, we can't discount the actions of other people or the impact of other circumstances. They contributed to the problem, too. Whenever you consider history, and even whenever you look at people in our world today or people in your own sphere of influence, remember that the lessons 
The heroes and the villains are sometimes not as clear-cut as they are in fiction stories that we read and write or in the movies that we watch. Look for the nuance and the context. The stories of history, as we said, can be some of the most powerful of all. But to get it right, we often have to dig a little deeper. We can look at those beautiful Moai statues on Easter Island and remember that when we judge history, we should try to be a little less, well, big-headed. That's today's very special episode. Thanks very much, as always, for joining me today. Next time, we're going to get started with a Sherlock Holmes story. It's going to be great. We talked also a little bit today about story heroes and villains, but guess what? We're going to be talking more about that in an upcoming episode as well, and I'm excited for that. All that and a story by Hans Christian Andersen are in the pipeline, so stay tuned. Before we finish up, just a couple of other quick things. If you enjoy this podcast, first of all, thank you. I invite you to come back for more. I love having you here with me. Thanks for being here. And if you enjoy it as much as I do, please do me a huge favor and rate, review, or subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Now, it's possible that some of you out there might also recognize me from appearances on another podcast, as I've mentioned before, the somewhat original podcast hosted by my friends Tanner, Drake, and Daniel. If you're a fan of chatting about movies, pop culture, and whatnot, head on over to the somewhat original podcast and check it out. That's all for today's show. Thanks for listening. I'm Dan the Story Man. Stay awesome. Until next time.